Hello and welcome to Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Bow, clinical psychologist and coach, mother of two traumatic births myself. This podcast is all about helping the helpers and supporting and training birth workers to feel connected and confident to navigate birth trauma. Advocacy and activism starts with conversations. My legacy is not going to be one of sitting around and saying, oh, well, that's just the way birth is. We can't change the system. Let's raise our voices while raising our vibrations. Trauma work isn't all dark and shadow. We can find light in without making light off. I want you to find growth, passion and purpose. Go back to the love, the joy, humanity that brought you to birth work in the first place. This podcast is also available in video format where guests have said, yes, let me be visible. Head on over to my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Erin Baum. Now, before we start, if you've been enjoying this podcast and you're listening on iTunes, can you hit pause for a second and leave me a review? I want these stories and support and messages of hope and growth to reach as many people who are interested in birth as I possibly can. Now, to do this, I need reviews. Reviews help the algorithm and they show the podcast to more people. There is no money in this for me. This podcast is just a small part of me being the change I want to see. It's also an excuse for me to shift out of mum life for, you know, an hour or so and have meaningful conversations with other grown-ups who are not quite as invested in fart jokes and Paw Patrol. I love stories. This is why I do what I do. This is why I do this podcast. Sharing stories can be such soul medicine. I really do believe that as healers and helpers, we cannot walk this path alone. We need support, a sounding board, and a circle, either a physical one or a metaphorical one for storytelling. Every time I post about maternal and infant mortality that's happening for black birthing people and families, I'm often met with some version of some passive-aggressive response. I get DMs from people saying, oh, but this isn't happening in Australia, or maternal mortality rates have improved, or you're scaring people by sharing these really peripheral stories. (laughs) Guess what? I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. We have a genuine health crisis that's occurring on a global level. So get out of your freaking bubble. Particularly if you are a white, cisgendered woman sending me these messages. I don't share these stories to tick a box or for some sort of gold star. I share them because I give a shit. The fact that black women are up to five times more likely to die in birth than white women is a phenomenal health crisis. I'm not an expert. There is a lot about birth and trauma that I don't know, and I'm not shy to admit, and I'm sure this comes across in many of the interviews I've conducted on this podcast, but whilst it's easy to sit back and send someone a message saying, oh, this makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, do you know what's actually a really easy thing to do? Is to reach out and have a conversation. Actively choose to have conversations with people who aren't in your immediate bubble. Dr. Saida Pepra is one of those beautiful people I reached out to. Like me, she's a clinical psychologist. She's also a doula and the founder and lead trainer of Diversity Uplifts. Part of her work is training people to see their implicit bias and working towards compassion rather than fear-mongering and coercion. In this episode, 
We chat about language in the birth space and this phrase that I'm sure you've heard, oh, there's no time for. <laughs> so there's some sort of emergency situation in a birth and people will insist, oh, there's no time for niceties. And yet we talk about how as psychologists, we're defying this myth every day. A psychologist's job, in part, is to navigate emergencies, talking people down from suicide or homicide, hostage situations where someone has a knife, a gun, or maybe a bomb. We manage to be calm and care for people with a quiet voice. We don't rush, yell at them, talk down to them, or ignore them. We make a human connection. We help people feel seen, heard, and safe. Or if our child's hurt, don't we explain what's happening, reassure them that they're seen and heard, and acknowledge their fears and pain? These are skills I want translated into the birth space. You can find Dr. Pepper at www.drsaidauplifts.org or on Instagram at Dr. Saida. You are more powerful than you know. If birth workers and the people they serve remember that they are powerful, then we will change the world. Brought people to birth in the first place because I don't think I've ever met anyone who's like, yeah, I want to be a doula because of all the horrible stuff that happens, right? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's interesting. I think depending on what area you're in, that could be a calling that doulas would come to. Like Mm -hmm. in the States, a lot of black women are coming to the doula work because they want to protect women from abuse in the hospital. And so, and it's very like, it's actually very much like for some people, like a response to the trauma that they are hearing that people are experiencing. So it's interesting. I mean, in some, yeah, like most, like I certainly didn't come to, to do the work thinking um, that I wanted to go, that I wanted to be a doula to like mitigate like people's trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did also, because I had a doula and I had, I didn't have a traumatic birth um, at all, but post my birth experience, my experience with the hospital, it really made me... Um, realize that and even coming into the hospital and sort of like the difference between all the warm and loving and supportive and encouraging and respectful like experience that I was having like with the midwives when I was at the office and at their center and then with my doula everything was different at the hospital and so Mm. I was like I do want to be a doula because I want to have I want to be able to like help people support them especially in situations where they can't have this optimal birth at home and they have to go into the system, Mm -hmm. um, how can they do that in a beautiful way? And it's interesting because I realized like in different, especially in other first world countries, I think the hospital experience um, may be different for for families. And I don't know, that's actually Mm -hmm. something we probably get into because um, it's a very not um, midwifery, doula friendly per se, in medical environment but some of them are and it, again it just depends on where you are and yeah but generally speaking that most people is going into the hospital are partially feeling like they're there to protect their clients from like the system mm. whatever that is mm. yeah it's an interesting thing to think about there? like is, there, is that was that at all your experience why you wanted a doula mm. i something in me said home birth wasn't the right choice for me and whether that's a retrospective who knows it's the woulda coulda shoulda right who knows but um yeah I think for me it was that feeling of kind of 
after it all happened, so after the first birth, I had a really large internal tear that wasn't picked up and I was in a lot of pain and it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, these things happen and lots and lots and lots of hemorrhaging. And I was like, had that moment of thinking, yeah, I'm going to die. Like this is, this is it. And I remember just feeling like so outnumbered, like the more people that came into that room, the more medical it got, the less humanizing it became. And I just think, The less you were in there, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I've spoken to people about this before, like all these small things when people are like, oh, what do you do? What do you say? I'm like, for me, one of the hugest things is like, even just somebody like looking at my face and saying like, yes, it's going to be okay. I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of all this stuff that just happens around you. And I think about like, okay, so I'm a white, educated, middle-class woman in a, you know, fairly expensive hospital. It still happened. Like, so then to sort of translate that into what it is like for someone who is petrified, who doesn't need to be petrified because we're all human, right? Right. mm. Oh, there's just so much. And when you say that petrified, you mean petrified because of what? Petrified. Like you said, because you said, like, as a white woman, are they petrified in, in that sense because they're, like, a minority in that environment? Or I think there's different layers, obviously, but, like, one of them is people not realising that they have any rights, like, at all. And even just the language around... Um, I tell this story a bit too, I remember, because I, with my second birth, I went to like 42 and two. And the amount of people who said to me, are mm-hmm. you allowed to do that? I remember even like my hairdresser saying, isn't that, right. isn't that illegal? And then having a conversation about like, okay, so what did oh. you think was going to happen? But then leading that to the like, well, for some people, yeah, some people are shackled during birth. That is still a thing that happens. So the sort of extremes of like, no, nobody's going to come and break down my door and force me to go to hospital and force me to give birth. Right. But actually that is something that happens. (sighs) Yes. It is something that happens. Yeah. And it's, and and people are not, some people are not allowed in certain instances. I mean, I think, you know, in, um, gosh, I mean, I, I don't know any cases of this specific example in the incarceration system, but I think in an environment where you actually don't have actual like full right over your body mm-hmm. and then you're under the medical care of a system, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's actually interesting. When you said that people are shackled, did you mean like in prison or in what environment would people be shackled? Did well, the only mean? system I know of would be, yeah, when people are incarcerated. Okay. Yeah. 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 But that's all I know of. I wouldn't. I know you would hope that that's not happening in another context. Yeah. Mm. But even the pressure, psychological pressure that people have to be told, okay, so I'm scheduling you for, for a C-section or for an induction tomorrow because you're two days past your due date. Mm. There's never, like, I hear women telling me that, that that's how their providers presented to them their yeah. option of that they said, well, we're scheduling you, you're two days overdue. This mm. is dangerous. We're scheduling you for your induction. You need to come in tomorrow or at eight o'clock, make sure you don't eat or whatever. Right. Mm. And so then there's like this sense of like, well, I don't know. The doctor said I have to go. What should I do? And it's like, well, did you ask any more questions about that? Because they mm. actually can't come. Like you said, they can't come to your house and, and make you come. Mm. And it's interesting 
because recently um, I've heard of a couple women actually just not going like they okay to their doctor and then just they didn't have the like they were just like I'm not going and mm. nothing happens then three days later they call you and they say hey you didn't show up you the doctor scheduled you for an induction mm. you know you, you need to come in right and so obviously you know I think as a doula I really want to know that my clients are in active care like that they mm. are getting monitoring if they're you know if you're and any if the if there's a sense that you should be being seen to establish your safety, then yeah, are you getting stress tests? Like, are the, is the doctor saying that you should come in for blood pressure or whatever it is? Go and do that. But you do have a choice, and mm. you should have conversations about your choice. Uh, mm. And I think that that is something that I know when I do trainings with doulas, like the sensitivity around. You want to encourage your clients to make sure that they are fully informed and that they have their rights, like that they know their rights and that they are, are I want to say allowed their rights, but really like the system is so um, intimidating for so many mm. people um, that they don't realize that they're allowed to do anything. There's a, there's a, a woman in the community um, who has a, I think it's the podcast is birth allowed. And it's like this whole yeah. concept of, you know, do people, you know, do, do people have the right to allow you to do anything when you're an autonomous person? And how did you become unautonomous suddenly because um, you were pregnant or you're mm. in labor? Um, yes, very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Mm. Oh, this is going, this is like, I've just got so many thought bubbles in my head for things that we could talk about. What's on your heart? What do you want to just go for it? <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, I would guess when you were, you know, it's so interesting thinking about the comparison between our systems in Australia and the States. I'm, I'm curious to talk about two things, and this is somewhat different than what you maybe were thinking of, but um, I'm actually thinking I really want to know like what your minority populations experience in the healthcare system that you're aware of versus like what the white population is experiencing mm. and how does that play in if you're aware as far as the sense that people have around their like safety in the hospital setting um it's a really big topic here in the states and it's something that really affects the, the, the black community a lot um and so i'm in conversations around that a lot but a lot of other minorities in the states you know immigrant families um definitely our indigenous uh, native american population um mm. you know has their own experiences on reservations but also in you know um hospitals that are in the the outer um of america um and all types of sort of like you know gender minorities and there's so many different aspects where people are really feeling like it's not safe for them in the healthcare system mm -hmm. um so i'm curious what do you experience there in australia is around like cultural safety and lifestyle safety i guess mm. it is really mixed so our system is odd in the sense that if you want continuity of care what a lot of people do is have an obstetrician. So we have a lot of really overqualified people attending births that don't require potentially someone who has surgical skills. And so what happens a lot is that when you are trained under like risk management and you go into a birth, you see a risk, whether there is a risk or not. So we have a system where we have a lot of really overqualified people doing a job that isn't really what they're trained to do. And some of them are great at it, but I would say some are like, it's 
it's just like putting the wrong person in the wrong place and so there's a lot of normalizing around things that go wrong in birth with increased interventions so there's that side of it but then there's also the midwifery led care is still a thing too um home birth is getting to be a much and now you're trickier having... you so you said me with I was wondering if your midwives are in the hospital or in home birth or birth centers. All over, all over. But it is getting a lot more difficult for midwives with home birth because of insurance and because of um, we've got a lot of the situation where I'm in Victoria at the moment where it's other midwives are like reporting midwives for attending home births and for like this, you know, that kind of sister wound stuff where it's not like the yeah. mum and the birthing person and her partner weren't asked, are you okay? Do you have a problem with this? It's just somebody stepping in going, well, how dare you do home birth? It's unsafe. It's this, it's this, it's this. So mixed opinions, but there are definitely, uh, yeah, the inter, I always talk about it like warfare, right? So, you know, like you get the people who should be on the same side, fighting for the same thing to fight with each other so that we don't see what's happening at the higher level it's just i think this is the biggest distraction that is it's happening classic. in our country yeah yeah absolutely it's mm. classic uh sociocultural warfare <laughs> yeah yeah so, similarities we don't have yeah. quite the maternal death rate that you guys have you, you do not or you do have we don't okay we don't. it's still not like as good as it could be but right. i think it's um yeah, I don't even pretend to like have all the answers on that one, but I would say. Sure, but it's, you know, it's not, a, it's not a, an international disparity. Yeah. yeah. So I think um, part of the work I want to do is make sure that we don't get stuck in this. Oh, well, that doesn't really happen here, so we don't need to worry about it. That's kind of one of my big things. So yeah. I think it's really easy sometimes for people to do that, especially you know, when you're in your bubble <laughs> of what you do for work, to be like, oh, yeah, that's something that happens over there to those people over there. And we don't give them names and we don't give them faces and we don't treat it like, well, actually, this is a human rights issue. It doesn't matter where you live, which is part of the joy and excitement of doing something like this. We're in completely different parts of the world, different experiences, but, you know, you come together for the one goal, right? And I love that because I feel like, we have to learn from each other cross-culturally. We have to learn from each other internationally. Um, it, sure, it certainly shouldn't be the case that people will think, oh, well, that's not happening here. It's mm -hmm. not gonna happen. Because it's a progression of things that are happening and not happening. And I do think it's interesting, you know, the, the interplay with insurance, not covering midwifery care, and if that's happening more than it used to, mm. or if the model somehow is shifting where there used to be more births with midwives and now they're more with, um, you know, OBs, it, it's going to shift the climate, you know, pretty, pretty quick, you know, as less mm. people have access to care that's intentionally non-surgical. Um, mm. And so there's just a lot more. I always say, like, if you have amazing skills and you're in the room and there's a problem, you're going to want to use your amazing skills yeah. on the problem. So it's, it's a natural default that surgeons will want to use surgery more often than not. Mm. Um, when they see a problem, just like it's a natural default that midwives who will not do surgery will find every way to bring a life 
to safety to the world without surgery, right? So yeah. you have, you know, two competing sort of like concepts, uh, systems there. Um, but I think, you know, going back to your, I think it's very interesting to be in a position of having had birth traumas and then noticing that the person that was there to serve you, I mean, for one, both the medical system, which was like sort of ignoring your presence as they're like getting ready for the emergency response, which is somewhat understandable, but I do a lot of training uh, medical staff too around how to respond in emergencies and still like maintain the humanity of the person on the table. Like it's so just a moment where somebody turns to you and they say, look, I know we're moving fast. I know there's a lot of people where, you know, where we're thinking of you, you know, just try to relax as much as possible is we'll try to tell you as much as we can. We're not going to be able to tell you everything. I mean, I had a group of uh, doctors, you know, and, and nurses or like medical folks when we were having these conversations and they were saying that, well, you know, there's so much going on. Nobody has time for all these niceties, you know, like mm. it's, it was almost like they were irritated, like with the convenience of you telling us that we should, yeah. you know, be kind and careful and considerate when we're in an emergency. And I'm like, I've been in emergencies. I've been yeah. in life or death emergencies. I understand as a psychologist working with, you know, highly mentally ill people, working with highly suicidal people. I've had people with razors in their hands, with knives mm. over their throats, with nooses on their necks. I mean, I understand that you have to respond a certain kind of way. And, but at the mm. same time, there is something that is important in that kind of human response that can help control the scenario. You also yeah. have someone's blood pressure, someone's heart rate, someone's um, sense of well-being or someone's anxiety that can impact their physiological body. And so, mm. you know, and just to remember that once they're off your table, they're going to go home with everything that happened and you're just like going to go on to the next person. Mm. Um, and so I was telling them, I said, then if it's so much for one person or to do who's in the middle of it, then designate the minor you know, nurse assistant or the residents or designate people on the team mm. to when there's an emergency that they are the ones to do communication. I mean, yeah. in your case, you had a doula who at least probably was trying to find a way to send to you. I, you know, I hope that they weren't like just in a corner somewhere in shock, shaking their head and, you know, like really yeah. overwhelmed, right? Like that, you know, a doula is going to do their best to try to stay present. Um, but imagine, you know, as you can imagine, people who don't have anyone there and it just yeah. becomes a big takeover. Um, when we talk about trauma, you know, as you know, in mental health, it's so much more about the perception of the person experiencing it than what mm. happened, right? Yes. So you could have had any situation happen and have 17 people tell you that they're experiencing trauma symptomology differently based on what happened. Maybe mm. there were two people in the room or two people next to each other when there was a trauma. And so it sort of mitigates it when you have someone that you're traumatized together with, or they might have debriefed it in a way where they could really talk about their feelings after. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to think about like the classic psychological first aid and like when I'm training doulas around, you know, thinking and, and the health providers around what would you need to think about related to birth trauma in the middle of it, but also mm-hmm. after some of it is, is processing out the experience. And if you can process a traumatic experience in the middle of the trauma, like, you know, I always tell people, Think about like with your children and if something dramatic happens, right? You mm. could be in a situation where there's a car accident and your child witnesses or somebody is having, you know, a panic attack in the street and your children are witnessing it or there's an emergency with another child. How do you manage your child? You know, you, you, you quiet down, you look at them in their eye, you sort of get their attention, you, mm. you know, and so just like we do have a way where, that we care for each other as humans yeah. in different scenarios that somehow in the hospital room, mm. it like 
kind of goes out the window. It's like somehow you don't need the care that you might need if the same thing was happening tomorrow or the day before and you were in a regular outfit on the street. Yeah. You know, like if something happened and you're suddenly bleeding unexpectedly and people are, a whole bunch of people are coming in, even if it was doctors and ambulances, I mean, your modesty, people would be thinking, oh my gosh, we're in the street, cover her. Like, mm. you know, people would be asking, you know, how are you feeling? Oh, I know this is so much, just take care. We're going to help you out. I mean, that's like, that's the response of first yeah. responders in the world. Um, yeah. And we just have to bring that more to, uh, to the birth room. Because mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, women and families and doulas are coming away from these situations um, feeling very traumatized. And when I listen to them talk about it, the trauma is not so much about what physically happened. Because mm -hmm. we can endure pain. Let's yeah. say, you know, there was a need for them to do. When I, I, had, when I had my first daughter, I hemorrhaged a lot at the end. And um, they were like going in with the towels and the fists mm -hmm. and the hands. And I mean... I was overwhelmed with the level of sensation of what was happening as yeah. I had just given birth. And then they're like trying to stop the bleeding mm -hmm. and it was super painful. I remember that it was painful. Yeah. I don't feel traumatized about that at all. Not a little bit. I, mm -hmm. I didn't, I mean, it was, I know I don't, I don't even think I thought about it again, except for explaining to people, you know, sort of like over, you know, like in my medical history that I hemorrhage and then they're like, well, how much did you hemorrhage? And then I'm sort yeah. of describing, <laughs> Like, I'm describing all the towels soaked in blood and they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you had a real hemorrhage. Um, it's such a quantifiable thing, isn't it? I found that too, that people always want to know, well, was it this or was it that? It's like when we talk right. about, you know, sexual assault and things like that. It's like, that's not the actually the important part. The right. quantifiable it, information is not the most important part. It depends on who you are, right? Like yeah. if you're, and it's a great point. Like, I guess if you're the medical provider, you want to quantify it to get a sense of the risk of hemorrhage for the future or what mm. the scenario was, which is still insensitive to the person's experience. Like mm. nobody's ever asked me, what was it like to hemorrhage? Nobody's ever mm. asked me that. You know? like, what Nobody's ever asked me either. Emotionally. Mm. Um, yeah. you know, but when I recount, I mean, it's, it was pretty intense. You know, like yeah. I was, you know, my ears were ringing and I couldn't really see. And I, I was in the haze and I thought it was all like after birth joy and excitement. I, I totally yeah. um, received the, the perception of it as blissful and because I had just had the baby. Yeah. Um, but I was also aware that there was a lot going on. Um, and so I say that to say, you know, my experience of being able to sort of accept that I had this pretty painful afterbirth situation, but I don't experience it as trauma because my doula explained to me what was happening. I did become very resistant to them wanting to use Pitocin. And I was like, no, no medication. Mm -hmm. It was like in this fit of like remembering that I wanted an unmedicated birth. And I wasn't mm -hmm. really thinking about the fact that the birth is over, um, you know, and she was able to sort of center me and, you know, let me know that this is very medically necessary. Like mm -hmm. you need, you need Pitocin. We're, you know, having a hard time stopping the blood. And, um, that was really, but because I had her, it didn't feel like anything. It was all like this loving, warm experience after. Mm -hmm. um, but people could have experienced same sort of perception ex of pain, right? They could have ex a, a massive amount of pain, but because people were talking at them, they, it was mm -hmm. a fear-based situation. If the, the midwife or the, the, the nurses or an OB had come in and said, ma'am, you need to lay down and we need to do medication because you're bleeding and you could die. And if they, you know, mm. sort of like got yeah. hostile with me, 
it would have been a memory of trauma and yeah. I would have felt violated and I would have felt pressured and it would have mm. taken away the joy that I was experiencing, you know, and, and I think that we have to, as much as possible, sometimes birth can have unexpected twists. Mm. Um, you know, I've been in a, you know, a number of births and, and, and consulted with families and, and birth workers where it did not go as planned and it was really traumatic and it was scary at moments, but there's still a way to center the mother's experience mm. so that she doesn't pick up on any of that as much as possible, unless it's necessary. I mean, yeah. sometimes you have to bring people's attention to like, we need you to focus. Like you're, you're you know, like, you know, there's sometimes like where people kind of dissociate themselves from the experience, mm. but they're needing to be present more to push because there's like the baby needs to come now. This is like yeah. the baby's been down too long. You know, we need like we got minutes before we have a problem or, you know, then there's sometimes a need to say to bring the birthing person into focus. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, I just there's there's such a it's a skill. It's an art. It's a heart space. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I definitely think it's the work of the doulas, but they do. Unfortunately, because of the um, scenarios that come up, both interpersonal and sort of medically, there is a need for more awareness around how to manage birth trauma and the vicarious trauma, as you said, uh, for mm. themselves. Mm. But it's a teachable skill. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. And it's not like something you have to learn in school per se, because it's experiential. I mean, all of these physicians and nurses have gone through school yeah. and they don't have this, you know, and we all are, we all are taught communication skills, mm. you know, that's basic, you know, um, reflective listening. I mean, those are courses that somebody took at some point. Mm. It's the practice of it. Uh, mm. and you know, I think, um, if I think of like some of the other key things, um, that can kind of help mitigate birth trauma, um, I think explaining what's happening when other people aren't explaining it is helpful. Like I've found mm. in birth situations and outside of that with people just having like emotional trauma responses that like, if there's a lot of activity happening, just literally like translating the experience in a calm way yeah. is like a new narrative for the mind. Like all mm. this is happening. Oh my gosh, what's happening in the distance. Well, the doctor just said, cause sometimes you're, you know, as a doula, you're in the room, they're telling mm. the family, this is what's happening. This is why we need to do a C-section or this is why we need to do, uh, you know, this intervention or, you know, and it, it's all so overwhelming that they yeah. don't register it. And there is no, it's like, there's a rush. Well, do you understand what we said? Well, you need to sign this paperwork. And so mm. just being able to give the family a chance to sort of reflect on what was said and repeat it, like literally just, sometimes I'll do that with everybody in the room. It's like, okay, I'm looking at mom. She's not looking like she's really understanding. Mm. And it's like, okay, so what I heard you say, and I'm looking at mom, so I'm not like trying to talk to the doctor. I'm trying to like talk vicariously through mom, you know? <laughs> yeah. that, you know, like what I heard him say is that, you know, he feels like blah, 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 and it's time to do this. You know, how are you feeling about that? Like, did you, do you have any questions about that? You know, like I'm really like wanting mm. to like facilitate that discussion. And then it's like, well, I, I just don't understand why, well, that, why that will be necessary. It's like, and I just sort of pause, <laughs> look at the doctor, like that was a direct question, you know? Mm. Um, and then like, that can be helpful because it's very, like when you're feeling traumatized, especially if you have a sexual trauma history, if you have personal trauma history, mm. um, or just like, if this is the first time you've ever experienced something where you've lost control of what you expected to happen and it's like something's painful or, you know, uh, you're not anticipating, 
you know, just to be able to have the reminder that you get to ask questions, mm -hmm. that you get to speak, that you get to be unsure, that you get to say, I'm not comfortable with this. Do I have other choices? Is this the only other option? Uh, because mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, in that fast paced medical world, there's just like this agenda to just hurry up and go. And if it's an emergency because of time, that's understandable. But there's a lot of times where it just feels like it's like more convenient to hurry up this conversation because there's more people to serve. Um, and it's easy to do that in a system where you have 10 births at a time happening all, all throughout yeah. and there's one doctor circulating. I mean, you know, there has to, it's, it's unfortunate because the system as it's set up is unfair to providers, like mm -hmm. to medical providers, you know, because most of them are wanting to give time. If they could spend more time, they would, but they also know that they have somebody else in the next room mm. and they're trying to manage their awareness of all of that and be present with you at the same time. It's a lot to ask a human to do. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I'm always like wanting the system all together to like uh, create a structure that's different, hire mm. more present you know, uh, providers on deck to be more one-on-one, -on -one, have an expectation that they spend more time in the room if needed um, so that there isn't this pull for managing so many people at one time, which is going to come off as insensitive sometimes and is going to end up being harmful, uh, especially if people are in a vulnerable situation at times. Mm. Would you be happy enough to talk to me about times where there has been coercion and there has been fear and there has been, I suppose, this is the thing I wonder about, like the amount of times that we can talk about the awareness of bias, yeah. but then do people actually act on it or do they like, oh, well, you know, I have awareness. Like awareness is great. Yeah. It's the action part that seems to be a problem. Yes. Well, you know, I think awareness, awareness with specific stories that are related to what you do every day that you have to come up with, it helps. Mm. So like when I teach like implicit bias and cultural humility, I'll do the beginning where I set up the whole concept, right? And then it's now give, and I give all kinds of examples, like, you know, the examples of you know, race-related, you know, implicit bias and gender and sexuality-related implicit bias and then sort of socioeconomic implicit bias and how your own personal worldview is going to narrow the way you see things. But then it's like, now let's talk about what you see every day. And a lot of times it'll be hard for people to want to give those examples. And Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start off with, okay, I'll give you a few examples from the mm. community at large. There's been a number of focus groups with, um, you know, communities that have expressed having obstetrical violence happen to them, you know, um, race-related microstressors, uh, just prejudices, discomforts, you know, sort of um, not trauma-informed ways of caring for women and families. And so I'll give examples. Like one of them uh, is a lot of the women who gave um, reports during this focus group with uh, Black Women Birthing Justice, um, mentioned being pregnant at some point as teenagers. And one of the stories that the woman told um, was that at the point of pushing, one of the, the nurses had told her, you know, you can't push yet, the doctor's not here, like that classic thing, right? 
like whatever. Like, yeah. I always say the sensation that has brought life into this world since the beginning of time. He wanted yeah, yeah, to yeah. Wait for a person to come into the room, to just yeah. stand there and wait until it comes out. And then, yeah, because yeah, no babies get born unless that right. happens. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, where this is all still going to happen here. And then you're going to just, anybody could have reached out and make sure the baby doesn't land on the table. So, and I mean, not to oversimplify, there are times of where course. there's assistance needed and, and, um, positioning and all that but really we this wasn't that situation so um every time she was pushing she said the nurse smacked her legs <laughs> i said stop pushing the doctor's not here why are you pushing right like very disrespectful <sighs> very mean very aggressive um and she felt very you know it was she felt very emotionally wounded by that obviously and mm. was enough to have remembered it many years later she was now an adult and sort of recounting the births that she's had with the system and i've given that example you know a lot when i especially with like labor and delivery nurses and and in medical ob setting and people are like oh my gosh that's so terrible and then i'm like okay so that's like terrible mm. but the pressure that the nurse felt about her not having the baby, is that unreasonable? No, 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 no. We all, no, we, I mean, of course, you, I mean, if, and then they go on explaining. So then the yeah. doctor gets in trouble if he's not there for the birth and the nurse has to chart it. And so then he'll get her in trouble or she'll get her in trouble or whatever, whoever is in the one, you know, um, for not having the doctors be there. And there's like this demerit system and every hospital's got the wrong way of doing this. Mm. But there is a pressure that's put on the client that's all based on the needs of these people at higher levels um, yeah. and not necessarily at all considering the fact that it's an unreasonable request to start out with as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Um, and so then it's like, well, how have you heard people tell moms don't push, which most of us on the receiving side of having pushed, especially having pushed without, um, you know, epidurals where you have the sensation of your body. Yeah. Um, it, that this just telling me that I shouldn't push sounds like a, like violent to me. Like it sounds mm. like oppressive to me. It sounds aggressive. Like, what do you mean? Like, don't push. I don't know. Like if somebody was vomiting profusely because they mm. were ill, and you say stop vomiting. Yeah, stop. Like, there's no, you know, what, what am I supposed to do about this? Right. Mm. Like, and so you telling me to stop doing something that's happening to my body is like forcing me to try to restrict something that really puts me in a bind. Mm. Um, and so then we get into conversations of, well, how else have you heard it? You know, and then it's like, when you're feeling at your most anxious, two o'clock in the morning, you've already accidentally had a mom push and the doctor missed it, and you know you could get in trouble. Now, how do you talk to her? You know, and it's like sort of teasing out hmm. the reality that there's a lot of times where people are feeling pressure um, for whatever reason, and they're acting out on their own internal feelings and that having nothing to do necessarily with the client. And then I'll say, now, if this client is a person that looks like you, how differently do you think people might respond than someone who looks like a group of people in the community that they don't have experience with, that they're not mm. terribly comfortable with, or that have a lot of negative stereotypes? Mm. How, how do you think it will be different if the woman, you know, let's say it's African-American, if you're a white woman, or if this is an a, a, a immigrant person that doesn't speak English, or mm. if this is a transgender um, person that doesn't present as female and has a, a partner that you don't identify as someone that, like how does it change that when now mm. there's some other additional thing added into the space mm. um and there's just so many things to sort of like 
unravel when we're looking at what it looks like for people to be mean to each other, you know, yeah. in a setting. And, and to not think that just because you're a nurse or you're a doctor that you somehow lose the pettiness of humanity when it mm. comes to, you don't really care. So, I mean, this isn't a person that makes you feel like you need to put on airs. Let's say this is a person who doesn't have good hygiene or someone mm. whose hair looks messy to you or someone, you know, like there's so many different levels of somebody that's by themselves. I would often tell people the stories that I've heard people tell when they were by themselves in childbirth. Mm. It, you think you know the, 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 the colleague sitting next to you, but mm. you don't know what they do when they're by themselves with people. Mm. And a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, uh, at-risk populations, um, minority groups, just various, you know, if, depending on the area you live, people go into birth spaces by themselves. They don't have the support. Somebody mm. has to work. Um, you know, they may be a single person, whatever it is. And, and you, nobody even knows how they're treated. And a lot of times mm -hmm. they don't necessarily feel like they have the, the, the right to report people. They don't feel safe to report because how do you mm -hmm. report into a system that somebody of authority does something that makes you feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. um, and these are the things that are uncomfortable to, to talk about, but we have enough case studies. We have enough focus groups. We have enough reports from communities all over, especially in the States. Mm -hmm. um, from multiple states, multiple socioeconomic levels saying that they, that they were treated in a way that was disrespectful. And then mm. having other people not from those communities saying, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. Mm. You know, so it is, um, I think the stories can help people think about when it happens again, like how they'll do it differently. Um, and, and I just always encourage people to buy and read these case studies and focus groups and reports like when communities especially locally come out with um community-based those are always the best because they're yeah. they're unfiltered they don't take out the things that would that would make you know an insurance company or a certain hospital feel bad they mm. usually will take the names out um usually um but you still get the point of the stories of, of what's happening and i think it's significant because people need to know it's like a real thing that's happened i mean obviously there are so many cases in the States where, you know, uh, black families had uh, medical issues that were not attended to. And then the woman dies and mm -hmm. there's all this question, oh my gosh, how could it happen? But when you listen to stories of, of particularly black women around the nation talk about the way they're treated, it's not surprising that if you would treat someone who isn't dying in a disrespectful way, if they mm -hmm. happen to be dying and you don't know, you're not going to listen as much anyway. So, you know, we, we've got, um, we've got some work ahead of us about like really just coming back to the humanity of why we're in our professions and mm. um, remembering that it makes such a difference the way we are with people each moment, because for you, this is one person out of 25 in a day, but for mm. this, this person and this family, this is their first child and the birth of their first child or the birth of their second child. It doesn't matter if you have 10 children, those are still only 10 experiences of your life versus yeah. thousands that you won't remember. And, yeah. and it, it does make such a difference for bonding, for the breastfeeding after, um, for the memory and sort of like, if you think of, you know, on the psychological level, the first memories that you have of bringing a certain child into the world that were very um, troublesome or very ab 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 abusive, you know, you had an abusive situation or you had some trauma um, I've heard families that I work with, with young children or even with teenagers still talk about, you almost killed me. 
Mm-hmm. I brought you into this world and it almost killed me. You've, you've been a terrorist since you were born, right? Yeah. We've heard people say this, these narratives. They don't mm-hmm. leave you. Um, mm-hmm. And if you have people that can honor you if you did feel violated and give you time to, to heal from it so that that doesn't have to be a wound that sort of, you know, oozes for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you have pe- people in the midst of a trauma, mitigate the trauma by communicating with you and, and, and sharing in the difficulty of it and, and giving you options and helping you feel like you have some level of autonomy, even if it's, well, we're going to have to do the surgery, but you know, do you want us to play music? A woman was saying that they, the OB um, was asking her when they, she had to do a C-section, all of her wishes for the C-section. And she was just thinking it was going to be so terrible. And in the end, she felt so loved and cared for by the mm-hmm. team because they knew she didn't want that. And they thought of what they could do to make it easier for her. And so they yeah. played music. And I think they, um, I don't know, they, they asked her about like the, the outfit of the baby. Do you want it to be this color or that? Just little details to make mm. people feel like they're, you just want to be seen. You know, yeah. That, that, yeah. that's really all. Mm. Talk to me about this idea. I'm curious. I, I have a sense of what you're going to say, but I'd be interested to see how you say it. When people say, oh, doulas are not meant to be activists. Doulas are not meant to be advocates. What do you think? You know, I, I think that comes from a privileged place. I think mm-hmm. anyone that says that has experienced a life where they have not needed advocacy very actively because they were, they were in a position where they had some level of autonomy and power mm-hmm. or they felt like they could get the resources to do that if they didn't in the moment. Um, and they've never really experienced people who their whole life is like, you know, a, a big um, suppression and, you know, with a lot of, you know, challenges and stressors that are coming from the system, not the mm. individual. And so, so I, you know, I, I was, you know, at a conference um, recently, and this conversation has come up in the doula world a lot about mm. doulas as advocates versus, you know, not and one of the things that I was sort of talking to a couple of colleagues of mine, other women of color, and then having this conversation with a majority white women doulas, is that I find that this conversation about advocacy or not is more of a conversation that isn't in the like women of color community. Mm. Like this is like a given that we're yeah, gonna no brainer. Yeah. And what it looks like is gonna be different based on the style of your personality, your client, the needs, the setting the safety of you and your client to actually be able to facilitate this advocacy in that setting versus after or before. There's a lot of nuances that we are pretty comfortable talking about without it needing to look like you do it just like me and I do it just like you. But I find that among a lot of the white doulas in that, that birth world, um, that there's this rigidity about agreeing on what it looks like, Mm -hmm. um, on, a consensus, you know, this idea of certification and licensure. And, you know, it's very much, you know, a part of the dominant cultural model to have standardization, to Mm. have a universal way that everybody does things. And while there are benefits to a universal sort of structure or accommodations and sort of standardized understandings, um, the individualized care is so precious because people Mm. are human and they need different things and as a clinician and this is not that a doula is a clinician but as a psychologist one of the key skills that we have is over time with enough experience with enough patients and enough clients and enough settings you understand how to 
deliver the services to the tailored needs of your client. That's mm. the skill that we develop over time. And to me, that's the skill that all providers develop over time. But this idea that like you would sort of keep doing it in a rigid way and not mm. shift if there was a need socioeconomically, if you move as a doula to a community where there's, because what is our role? I mean, like, I mean, for instance, you know, this idea of, you know, an uninterrupted, you know, presence in your birth of a person that's with you. Um, but what if somebody says that you can't be with them? Mm. What if some, what if the provider says that you have to leave? Mm. Do you just walk out? Do you ask your client knowing that it's their right to have a person with them in yeah. almost every setting? That's a, it's a, like a part of your rights to have the support of your family. Is it because if you know that this person has trauma or that they're really anxious or that you've been working with them for, for months now mm -hmm. and they don't know any of these people, even if they're providers in whatever way, and that they're, you know, there's a bond and a trust and you're, you know, they're leaning on you to mm -hmm. turn to your client and say, how do you feel about me leaving? Is that okay for you? Now, I'm, that, that's the way, if you notice, like I'm always sort of like giving these examples where mm -hmm. my relationship was with my client and I really address them so that they can clarify for me out loud to the world what they're wanting mm. so i my version of advocacy typically doesn't look like me addressing a doctor or a nurse about what they're doing um i have heard of situations that i can imagine if i was there <laughs> um you know where you know there was a situation where the uh, uh ob was the woman had said she didn't want a episiotomy he pulled the scissors out and he was already ready to cut. And mind you, she is like sitting back so she can't really see what's happening. Um, and he's going to cut. And I want to say that the doula like, you know, kind of like blocked the hand or something like that. Or that was sort of like something about the story that I heard. Mm -hmm. And um, people were like, well, you can't do that. You're, you can't, you know, interrupt a medical procedure. And it's like, yeah, but you can't go against your client's actual professed mm -hmm like statement of what they don't want. I mean, you can, but that's abuse. Like that's yeah. actually obstetrical violence to yeah. forcibly cut someone who can't see you doing it, right? Mm -hmm. So in this situation, you know, what would a doula do? Whatever they felt was most appropriate. And I would never like micromanage, even like as a trainer, how they should mitigate that. Nor would I necessarily encourage, I mean, you know, like that you hit the doctor. I mean, now you're gonna have an assault situation yourself, right? I mean. Yeah. But to say that in that moment that you shouldn't advocate, are we advocates or not? Mm. What does that mean? So if you're there and the doctor is about to cut her and she has a birth plan that you've communicated to the team and you know that she has no idea, she just got off of a contraction and she's sort of just taking her deep breaths and this is like his moment because she's distracted. Mm. What are you gonna do? Now, if you sit there and you don't say anything, and you allow the episiotomy to happen while you're sitting next to her and you're witnessing it. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I almost want to say, let's put this on the clients. What do you think about a doula that you have been working with and you paid them to help you have a birth a certain type of way and to protect your sanctity of your birth plan in the sense of understanding it, remembering it. There's like, Every eight hours, there's a new nurse or every 12 hours, right? We could be there for three days and we've had so many different people that don't even remember the birth plan. Part of my role is to make sure that people remember what you wanted. Yeah. I think it's my role to say, 
oh, wait, doctor, just, be, you know, she said that she didn't want an epidural. Can you wait a second? She, when she finishes her contraction, she'll probably tell you something about that. I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Um, and I think that you are calm and you, you have a respectful presence. Um, you're not antagonistic. You've been, you know, actively engaging with the, the birth team. I think in a very team approach, I think we're mm -hmm. all needed. Usually at the end of a birth, we're all shaking hands and hugging. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like, you know, I've never had a situation after, maybe in the beginning, there's some initial guardedness to my role as a doula because people have their own whatever, but they see that I'm just here to assist the mom and her experience and staying calm and breathing. It's usually a benefit to them because they don't have to stay with an anxious person. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we just, we're, we're all there to support mom, aren't we? Right. So I just mm -hmm. try to like remind everybody like, you know, to center. So I think, you know, those are my thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I don't know a situation if I, when people ask that, not you, but you know, when it comes up in the community, I'm wanting to hear, tell me the scenario of advocacy that you feel like you should stay silent. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? And why are you silent? Mm -hmm. Like, and who are you silent for? And what is that silence doing, right? Like, what is the, the ultimate goal? So that the, the doctor smiles at you and is happy that you were a quiet, complacent person and didn't interrupt your system. A good girl. Even though, yeah. You know, like, you're, yeah, you're a good, oh, good girl, doula. You can come back mm. on this floor anytime, right? Gold sticker for you, yeah. I, you know, I mean, my only thought in birth it, I mean, my, like, not only, but the central thing is, how is she experiencing this right now? How is she mm -hmm. feeling right now? That's, like, always what I'm trying to, to be um, a keeper of. Mm -hmm. So if she's calm, I'm wanting to keep that. If the doctor comes in, I don't care what, and I mean, if we all know nobody, there's no emergency, and they're mm -hmm. loud, or they're on the, the little walkie-talkie as they're coming in from the, and I will go over to the, hey, she's in a contraction, you know, not mm. like in an aggressive way, but like, you know, we're all on the same team and mom's like doing her thing. So remember, mm. if you're quiet, you know, that I, they, I may have the lights off and then they come in and they turn the lights on. Hey mom, blah, blah, blah. I just give them a little like, to me, that's advocacy. Yeah. You know, it's not like, I don't know what people think advocacy is. The other thing I think is that a lot of times when people use terms, they have a definition in their mind. Yeah. It's totally different than another person's definition. So, so it's very hard without the operational definition of what we're saying. Mm. Um, maybe there are people out there that are talking about physically, you know, not physically fighting, but, you know, yelling or being, not, I don't, I've never heard anybody give me an example of that as advocacy. Like what mm. I know people doing as advocates, they are, making sure that the team understands the birth plan. And when people do things outside of it, they're protecting it by speaking to it in the room. There's mm. nothing wrong with that. Mm. Um, you know, they are asking, you know, clients or sometimes even addressing doctors and nurses. I don't like to do that because I, and this is more, I think like psychological savvy around like, how do you help people help you? Mm. And I find that when you, um, when people are in a position where they want to maintain dominance and not that all providers are like that, but in that sort of like, this is my hospital, this is my birth room, this is my patient. Yeah. Um, getting in a 
fight with you about who has control over her is nothing. Because as far as I'm concerned, she mm. has control, right? Like you can think whatever you want and I'm not trying to be in control. But if I can recenter her voice and her wants or the family's voice or the partner's, then that just like brings it back into the space and it's not about me. It kind of circumvents this like, if you want to make a war with me, the doula, I don't give you that opportunity mm. um, because this isn't about me. That's my point. This is about yeah. her, right? So I always, yeah. and usually a couple of times of sort of facilitating the, the switching of the conversation, maybe this is like from mediation training and like, you know, couples training, you know, like all the sort of skills that you get working with like interesting scenarios. Um, you know, I find that people, they're all, they get, they get it. They right away. Oh, okay. Yeah, mom. So any more questions? Sometimes they're even obnoxious about it. I know you're going to ask if there's any more questions, if there's any other options. So these are the three options, right? Like, and it's like, whatever, <laughs> we just want the information, you know? Um, and some people are awesome too. I mean, you know, we get hard on the, on the for medical providers, but, um, I mean, they're, they're coming far and wide and try far and wide trying to, um, figure out what they're doing wrong these days. And like, why is everybody so upset? Like, mm. and I think once we tell these stories, they're like, oh yeah, that's, you know, we, yeah, we kind of do do that a lot. Or I've seen my colleagues do that. And, and, and I'm saying the same thing to them. You should advocate like for that, like for that mm. client, like you should, you should like, if you know that this doctor is always doing episiotomies where people didn't ask, mm. like you should do something about that. It is your role as a, as a health provider to, um, to advocate for the needs of, of clients, mm. you know? So, you know, this is a conversation I think it's for everybody. Mm. I'm wondering then like with our psychologist hats on, this is something I wonder about a lot. Is it potentially when we're using the, all those A words, like, is it that people don't get the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness? So they think, I think so. activism actually just means being aggressive. You're like, no, it just means being assertive in whatever Right, way. exactly. It just means actually having a clear, like, goal of autonomy and rights and then affirming them in a space. That's all it means. It doesn't, mm. it, it doesn't, right. It's not necessarily with the picket. It's not with, um, you know, a loud voice. Um, it's not aggressive. Um, and it's funny because we really tease that out a lot, I think, in our field around just as we typically are, if we're in community work or even in interdisciplinary teams, we are advocates for our clients in many ways. And that never or rarely looks like us, like, standing up in a meeting yelling at people about, you mm -hmm. need to this for my, you know, that's just not what that means um, in that, in that context. So maybe it is like an opportunity for us to redefine it um, for the birth world or with the birth world around what are we saying when we mean advocacy? And, and I, I just want, you know, I know that the fear, because I always like think about what's the fear that everybody has about the idea of advocacy. Yeah. And they think, I think that doulas will be kicked out of hospitals if they advocate if they advocate mm. um, too much for their clients. Um, and that advocacy means that doulas are taking a medical role. Mm. That's not their place. I've heard that a lot. Um, and that we would lose our sense of where, where we are in the space, right? And so I think if you redefine that advocacy is just clarifying the rights which hopefully we're all on the same page that we have rights mm. and that those rights should be honored and that when they're not, 
that there needs to be some mitigation of that. And in the moment, if they can be mitigated, I mean, what we try to do as doulas mostly is teach our clients and families what their rights are, what the various stages of things are so that they know if we get into a situation, these are the things to ask, these are the things to understand. But sometimes they are unexpected things, but also sometimes clients don't remember anything we've said because it's yeah. in the middle of, of labor. Um, and so to, to uphold those things, I think we would agree that they're important, but I think there's a lot of fear because of like social conditioning and really mm. because if we were a fleet of male doulas in the world and we had a, a skill um, and we, we knew our profession very well, we knew how to calm people, we knew how to, um, we knew the, the course of the medical um, sort of terrain and what the medications mean and this and that. We understand it for educational purposes. We're not prescribing, we're not recommending, but we're mm -hmm. making sure that our clients in this fast moving system do know and understand what's being said to them. Um, if there's a breach in that during labor, is that no longer something that we're finding important to do? Mm -hmm. um, and why can't we figure out a way to have that conversation with our clients, with providers, in a way that's not like antagonistic. Who's perpetuating this idea that that is antagonistic? Mm. Um, I know that it exists in that medical hierarchy, even a nurse, I've seen nurses say, oh, I wish this other doctor was on now because I know that doctor would do this, but this one is like this, I'm so sorry. And I'm thinking, well, if you know that there's an option, can't you suggest it? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, we, we don't get involved in the doctor's decisions. Mm. But is it getting involved in the decision to say, is there another option to ask a question, right? So I think, you know, and if it is, and the medical world has such a problem with families being informed and knowing their rights and asking mm -hmm. more questions when they have questions, that we need to continue to push back because mm -hmm. it's not appropriate to push people through this um, assembly wheel of birth and leave many of them traumatized, confused, Mm. um unsettled it's i mean just because they didn't nobody died doesn't mean that there was no harm mm. and i think that there's a lot of harm in in fear-based coercion mm. um you know and the kind of pressure and i think that when it's too much and you see that it's too much for your client i don't think that there's anything wrong i've had situations where my clients have broken out in tears and bald crying as the doctor's explaining something to them and they're just going on with their, well, you know, because this situation, so well, the reason why, and then she's like, oh my God, oh my God, and I'm like, can we pause for a second? Mm. It seems like mom can't hear you anymore because she's crying, yeah, right? Like, like, can we acknowledge that there's something happening here and just like, and then, you know, what, what is making you cry at this moment? Like, what about what you heard is so difficult? Like, what, mm. are you confused? Are you afraid about something? Because maybe the, and I would, maybe the physician can give you an answer that would make you not afraid, right? Like, yeah. they're still here as a resource. While you're mm. in the room, we need you to mitigate this problem here that you're like sort of overlooking. Um, I think that's awesome. And I'm telling mm. you, I have seen more providers respond positively to the opportunity to be more human with their clients yeah. if they've forgotten than not. Very rarely. I mean, maybe once or twice I've had, you know, people seem to feel like it was an inconvenience that they had to keep answering questions. But to be honest, this is my client. And my mm -hmm. client had questions, they got them answered. 
they've made a decision that they felt more comfortable with, or at least they lined up with the decision that was being made, and we moved on. Take time to move today's conversation through your body. Get up, go for a walk, have a shower, dance in your kitchen, cry, do something to shift any tension that might have come up. Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers, the course, is out now. The link is in the show notes and you can also head to drerin.com.au. Early bird prices will be up until the end of 2019, but as of 2020, the price is going up, so don't dawdle. Hope is a doing word. My hope is that warm, empathic, intuitive workers will stay in birth. But we need to do something. Take a big step and work on some of the fears that you have. To stay in the helping and healing professions, you need to level up your self-care and support. And if you're struggling to even do human 101 with your sleep, nourishment, rest and so on, how are you going to serve anyone? You owe it to yourself and the people that you serve to make sure that your cup is running over and you are thriving. If you want coaching to live a life that you don't need to escape from, then reach out to me, drerin.com.au, or you can find me at drerinbow on Instagram. Thank you so much for making time for yourself to feel uncomfortable and grow and learn. I love it. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak my passions and do my soul work.